Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're continuing on uh, through this uh, letter that Paul wrote with uh, Timothy to the Colossians. We're going to pick up in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, some texts are harder to hear than others. Uh, we come uh, with these texts, or to these texts from a very different vantage point in some ways than those who originally heard them. Father, we come with uh, cultural blindness, with stubborn sinfulness, with sinful abuses that uh, we have experienced. And these things make it more difficult for us to get beyond the noise and to hear what you are saying. So I ask that you would work by your spirit to silence those voices that are opposed to you, the ones that each of us is so used to listening to. Help us to hear you and what you're really saying and not what we are afraid you might say or that we hope you will say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was uh, one of those unexpected conversations that sometimes take place. Uh, this past week, I had a, well, I didn't have, Eli had an appointment with the ENT, and so I thought, you know, I'll bring Jaden along. You know, the two of them haven't been spending much time alone together, so I thought, oh, let's go to lunch together, let's go to the doctor's office. And so it was on the way back from the doctor's office, which is on the other side of town, uh, Jaden sort of made this comment that I'm not sure where it came from. Perhaps it was coming from one of the books she was reading, but she expressed, Daddy, I really feel that you and Mom aren't going to get a divorce. Like, well, that's good news. (laughs) It is good news. My daughter's not worried about the relationship between her parents. That's excellent news to hear. Okay? And so, you know, she and I talked a bit about that. And 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 one of the things that I mentioned about that was that, you know, Amy and I try to live like the gospel is really true. Of course, we, we know it's true. But we have to live like it's true. And part of what I was trying to tell her is that, you know, Amy and I, we try to deal with one another's sin in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that we don't build up bitternesses and anxieties. And so... As we come to this text and as we think about these things, what Paul is really trying to get at in this relationship 
is to live like the gospel is really true. And we're going to talk about this this week, and we're going to talk about this in the context of marriage next week as well. So don't think I'm saying everything there is to say. Okay. The big idea this morning is that Christ provides sufficient grace to obey him in marriage. We're going to look at this in terms of three things that will kind of build upon one another. That's uh, sort of what I do. And the first thing is that Christ has authority over our marriages. Paul, earlier in this letter to the Colossians, uh, has stressed that Jesus, as the firstborn over creation, has authority over all of creation. So all everything that exists outside of God, he has authority over because he is the uncreated one, the eternal one. We talked about that idea of what it means to be firstborn. It doesn't mean that he was born. It's a, it's a title, meaning one who has the inheritance rights. And so he is supreme over all of the created order, not just material things, but this includes institutions. God, as we see in Scripture, has instituted marriage, and therefore he has the right to regulate marriage. And we see that God does that very thing. We see the institution of marriage primarily in the text that we heard this morning from Jerry in Genesis chapter 2. That's the very beginning. Marriage was God's idea, and he regulates it in terms of um, who shall get married. And as we've talked about last week, I I mentioned that sort of as an off-the-cuff thing. But it's very important that a man leaves his parents to marry a woman. God regulates who may get married. And we cannot... Forget this. Marriage is a particular kind of relationship. It's not the same as merely a friendship, though it ought to include friendship. We see in Deuteronomy 24, for instance, God regulating when marriage ends. And so God is involved in these things, not just in those two passages of Scripture, but in many passages of Scripture, God is regulating marriage. What's going on here, however, in addition to all of that, is that Paul is applying what he's been saying about their sanctification, the fact that they have, they have a new identity in Christ, that they are, they're done with the old man, and now they are the new man in Jesus Christ, that as a result they're supposed to put off certain things and put on other things, and also this idea of what we've been talking about previously of the peace of Christ the word of Christ and the name of Christ regulating relationships within the church and now he's expanding to those relationships that are in addition to the church. And so he's going to go through um, the marriage relationship. He's going to go into the family relationship. He's going to go into the work relationship. And so as I read, read all of these things, this is what's called a household code. And this is not an unusual thing in that place and in that time, okay? And and so it's just talking about the general relationships, and usually at that point in time, uh, you you, you found your place within the household, the economy, so to speak. And so... um, Servants would, or slaves, would live as part of the household. That was their cultural context, okay? We'll get into that more deeply in weeks to come. But uh, today we're going to focus mostly on the marriage relationship. And what we want to do is we want to keep in mind, though I'm going slowly through this, that these things are not dumbbells. They're meant to be barbells. 
And for those of you who go to the gym, you understand some of this. I go to the gym, and I've started working out with the dumbbells. And, you know, the dumbbells are, it's the weight for one hand, okay? And it's just, you just work it with one hand. A barbell has balancing weights on either side, okay? And it's supposed to use two hands to lift the barbell. If we treat these things like dumbbells, we'll, we'll get off balance, okay? Because we're only addressing one side of the relationship, but the scripture here is addressing both sides of the relationship. So there's weight on each side. Each party is addressed. And that's part of how it's different from the normal household codes that were found in that period of time and in that very place. Because usually it only addressed those who were under authority. It never really addressed those who were in authority. But Paul is going to address both sides of that equation. So it's going to be balanced. But don't expect all of it in every sermon. That's all I'm saying. Okay, where was I? Okay, he mentions this phrase, we're going to work back, as is fitting in the Lord. And this points us to Christ's authority to regulate marriage. We change, we shift. We all, many of us are familiar with the song, I fought the law and the law won, you know, that whole thing. Well, really what's supposed to be going on here is that I stop fighting the law. I begin to submit to the law because it is the law is Christ himself. And so because he's our Lord, if we're Christians, through redemption, he also has authority not over marriage as an institution, but he also has authority over our particular marriages. And so it's not just, you know, marriage in general, but he has authority over Amy in my marriage. And if you're married, he has authority over your marriage as well. And so it's not just that we should listen to the basic blueprint of marriage, but that we need to listen for our marriage. And how those things like the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ interact with our particular marriage relationship. And so the gospel does not free us from Christ's authority, but rather the gospel enables us by subduing our hearts that we're able to submit to it. And so the peace, word, and name of Christ matter for marriage. They restore it to God's design, or they're part of the process by which they are restored to God's design. And so his instructions are not just to sort of minimize social chaos and upheaval that would be caused by the gospel. And that was one of the fears, that, or one of the reasons some people think this is here, is that, <clears throat> well, you know, the gospel comes and it overthrows all things, and, and they're worried, you know, the fear was uh, that the Christians would be persecuted because they're undoing all of the social institutions. That's why some people, I don't hold to this view, that's why some people think this is in here. Okay, there's certainly there's that aspect to it, but that's not the reason why Paul has this here. But we do have to recognize that that the gospel is uh, in, the, in Paul's instructions are not just to minimize social upheaval, but perhaps this is one of the reasons or one of the things that the false teachers of Colossae were doing. Maybe perhaps they were encouraging such upheaval. We see it's popular today to take passages out of context, right? We've seen it. We've heard it. And one of the passages that is often taken out of context is from Galatians. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, so forth and so on in Christ Jesus. 
The context of that particular passage is the context of one's access to God. Meaning that you don't have, you know, a, a, a way in precisely because you're a guy as opposed to a girl. Or you have a, a better chance of getting in because you're a slave owner instead of a slave. What Paul is saying there is that everyone, in terms of their their access to God through Jesus Christ, is on an even playing field. It doesn't mean that sexual distinctions suddenly are obliterated, or that economic distinctions are suddenly obliterated. Paul's not, uh, Paul was not saying that. But some people want to try and make Paul say that. And so the same Paul who said that in Galatians is saying this thing right here in Colossians, and in Ephesians chapter 5, and in Titus chapter 2. And so we have to take those passages together and help to understand them instead of taking one of them and making it the one that destroys the rest. And that's probably what the teachers at Colossae were doing, and therefore undermining marriage with their false teaching. So the gospel doesn't overthrow social institutions, but rather changes social institutions by changing the people who are part of those social institutions. There are things that are in each culture that are right, and there are things that are wrong about how they understand marriage. And so what Paul here is is going to address is the bigger picture Okay, the, the God's design for marriage and how it plays out in different cultures will look a little differently. Okay, a marriage here in America is not going to look like the same as a marriage in Pakistan, even if you're both Christians. Okay, it will have a different look to it. So Christ's, uh, Christ's instructions here through Paul transcend cultures but are applied in those cultures. It's sort of like diet. We all need to eat, right? We all need to eat a healthy diet. A healthy diet in America will not look like a healthy diet in Uruguay or, as I said, Pakistan or Camp Verde. Uh, yeah, Cape Verde, as I mentioned earlier. A healthy diet may look very differently in different places. The point is, is it following the design of a healthy diet? Right? So Christ, as creator and redeemer, has authority over marriage and our marriages. Let's get to the gist of this thing, huh? Christ calls wives to live under the authority of their husbands. I understand that for many people, that is a difficult sentence to process. That there can be lots of baggage that comes, particularly because some people have abused this. And it has in many ways been um, used to oppress people. Let's distinguish between the abuse and the reality. Okay? We, we will come up against this sort of thing when we talk about parenting as well. His instruction for that time was not countercultural, but for 21st century Americans, it's very countercultural because we essentially have an egalitarian mindset here in this country. He begins with wives, and as I said, he's soon going to get the husbands. Uh, remember that whole barbells versus dumbbells thing? And he says specifically, wives. He calls them out in a good way, not a bad way. Submit to your husbands. Now, 
For those of you who have any even basic knowledge of Greek, you remember that the word for um, woman and wife is the same word. Same thing for man and husbands. It, it all depends on the context. And in this particular sentence, uh, the translators, for clarity's sake, have included the word your. That is not in the Greek. In this particular uh, passage, we'll find that it is there in other passages. And so, you know, theoretically, it could be women and men, but we know from the context that it's not. Okay? as well as the parallels that are made with other passages, particularly Ephesians chapter 5. This does not mean okay, that women are to submit to men in general, but they are to submit to their man. Okay? Uh, although that possessive is not there, we do see it in Ephesians 5, which is the parallel text, which was written about the same time that Paul wrote Colossians. Okay? And so, you know, Amy, my wife, is not supposed to be walking around living in submission to every man she meets. I think she only has one husband. I'm her only man, so to speak. And so I'm the only one that this statement is going to be true about. One of those funny little stories that happens in life is that when I, before I came here, I interviewed for a job at State Farm. And at that point in time, I had two different resumes. I had one for ministry jobs, and I had one for non-ministry jobs, because ministry jobs take forever to get. So I got an interview at State Farm, and I had to travel from where we lived in Winter Haven up to Jacksonville, Florida. I got to spend the night, so I brought Amy with me. We sort of made it a little date. You know, they paid for my dinner, all this kind of stuff. I get into my interview, and I'm sort of excited because they're actually paying money for me to get here. This is good, right? That was until they asked the very first question. When they asked the very first question, it became very clear to me that I had uploaded the wrong resume to State Farm. It was my ministry resume, wherein I mentioned that I believed in male headship in the family and in the church. So now they're wondering if I can deal with a female boss. I'm like, well, of course I can. I have in the past. I can't. And... I would in the future from that point in time. So there's not, this is not a, an issue of society in general where no guy could ever have a female boss. This is talking about a very particular thing. Not men and women in general, but a husband and a wife. Okay? So, in Ephesians 5, the parallel passage as I mentioned, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. And it does have that word own in there in the Greek, idios, just in case you're wondering. It's in there, as to the Lord, which is a very important little phrase that's added in, to, in Ephesians. And, and later on he says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'm going to get back to this. Okay? Their own husband. It does not mean that men should make their wives submit to them. There is no command, Husbands, make your wife submit to you. That's not there. It's not your job, guys, to make your wife submit. You are not living out Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew in your home, okay, where, where you're doing all kinds of things to try and get her to do what you tell her to do. That is not what this passage means, okay? That would be an abuse of this passage, 
does not mean that women are inferior to men. As we saw from Genesis chapter 1, they have been made in the image of God. They bear and reflect the image of God just as much as men do. So this is not about intellectual superiority or anything like that. It has nothing to do with it. Some wives are vastly superior in many ways to their husbands. Some of them are smarter. Some of them might even be stronger. Some of them have very different strengths and weaknesses than their husbands do. We're meant to complement one another, not oppose one another. It does not mean that women are slaves, mindless robots, or drones. This is not saying that. It's not saying that women don't have a voice. Remember, it talked about Christ and the church. The, the church submits to Christ. What does the church also do? Makes prayer and petition, right? We have a voice. Although the church is meant to submit and obey to Jesus Christ, we have a voice. We, we, we offer up our requests to God. And it's the same thing. Wives speak to their husbands. They make their desires known. They make their needs known. And husbands, if they're smart, will sometimes request their wives' input on decisions. Foolish is the man who never asks his wife anything. Okay? Just because God has placed you in a position does not mean that he has given you personally all the resources to fulfill the requirements of that position because he gave you a helper as it talks about in Genesis 2. Utilize her. <laughs> Ask her. Listen to her. One of the things that, that, um, is, that we do in our own marriage is just stupid and doesn't really mean anything, but still it just illustrates the point. I am horrible at picking lines. If you want to be in the longest line with the longest wait, follow me. Okay? <laughs> And so one of the delegated things in our marriage is if we're together, Amy picks the line, okay? She's apparently a much better line picker than I am. But I can't say, I'm the man, I must choose the line. Say, no, honey, go for it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's the division of labor in every household is going to be different, and that's going to be based upon strengths and weaknesses. You know, Amy takes care of the books. I want nothing to do with the money. i got enough to worry about. Amy does a great job working with that kind of stuff. Okay, there's other stuff. I mean, Amy, obviously, very good at housekeeping. There are things that we share responsibility with. We both cook. There's things we share. Thankfully now, I don't have a mow a lawn. I'm good. All right. So anyway, back to where we were. Oh, I missed a good point. That was awesome. But this is, as we look at this command, this is a passive verb. So again, it's not to subjugate, but to be subject. And what it means is to place oneself under the order that exists. It's basically a compound word, under an order. And so place yourself under a previously established order. That's sort of what that word submission means. Dan Allender talks about this in his book, Intimate Marriage, uh, sorry, um, Intimate Allies. 
Uh, submission is the giving up of one's own will and agenda for life, for the benefit of another person. So what you're saying is, is when uh, you're, you're recognizing that you're on the same team, that generally speaking, you might have um, the same mission in life. Amy and I have the same basic big picture goals in life. We might at times have different smaller picture strategic opinions and, and goals, and that's part of what has to get worked out in the context of our relationship and our marriage. Okay, But what the default is for the wife is to say, okay, I may not agree with that. I might not like that, but I'm going to go along with that. That word in Ephesians 5, you know, everything, means that essentially there's no limit to this except for the one limit that we all recognize. A husband can never ask his wife to sin. She does not have to submit to that in any way, shape, or form. She goes, out of line, buddy. That's abuse. That's going beyond what God has called me to do. In other words, marriage should not really be a battle for control. Because God is the one who has established authority in marriage. And if you don't recognize it, that's what your marriage is going to be. Who's going to be on top? Who's going to get their way? And that's where, that's where James chapter 4 comes in. Why all these battles and fights among you? Because you each have desires and you're not getting your way. And so if you don't come at marriage with this basic viewpoint, this foundational thing, what you're doing is you open yourselves up for far more struggles and battles than you could ever imagine. All because you're unwilling to submit first to Christ's authority and then to his delegated authority. And so, think of it this way. A dance. Okay? Dancing in our modern culture is not about relationship. If you go to a dance club, what is it? It's a bunch of people standing around. Um, I've seen this on TV. I've never actually been to one. So, But, you know, they're kind of doing their own thing. And I just danced horribly right there. Okay? Because... I don't usually go do dancing. But you see, everyone's doing their own thing. And they, they might for a moment hold hands or something and sway together for a little bit, but no, there's no one who's sort of in control. It's sort of like chaotic free-for-all. And that's what a lot of marriages are. People go off, they do their own little thing, and, and every evening they come home, they spend a few minutes together, they hold hands for a little bit, maybe have dinner together, and that's really the extent of their oneness. That's not one flesh. Okay? A, the dance is supposed to be like a waltz. Or like a tango, where one person is leading the other, the other person is following along, they're moving in concert with one another. Okay? That's a one flesh kind of marriage. That's what God is trying to get us to embrace with this idea of one leads, one follows. It's good. It's meant to be good. We don't need the bad dancing thing. Okay? And so, while offering wisdom and perspective, what wives do is they submit to the decisions of their husbands. Okay? They offer wisdom, they offer perspective, they offer suggestions, but they recognize that God's going to hold the husband accountable for everything that does happen. Kathy Keller, 
in the book, The Meaning of Marriage, notes this, I discovered that my submission in marriage was a gift that I offered, not a duty coerced from me. So Tim's job was not to force her to submit, but submission was her gift to her husband and to her kids. We see, as we heard from 1 Peter chapter 3, that the holy women of the past submitted. And what's interesting here is some people will talk about how submission is not really the idea of obedience, and yet, how does it explain her submission in this passage? She obeyed Abraham. So they're, they're not completely, they're not identical, but they're connected. Okay? And in the context that, that Peter is writing, he's, he's, he says, even if they don't obey the word, in other words, even if they're not believers. I heard Tony Evans, uh, one of those little, maybe, maybe it was the wrong sound clip. Okay, we were, we were on vacation in upstate New York, and they played this clip of Tony Evans, and I'm like, I just lost all respect for Tony Evans because he was essentially saying that if your husband's not a Christian, you don't have to submit to him. I was like, well, where's First Peter chapter 3? It says the exact opposite of what you just said. And so it's not our husband's godliness that's the issue, or your husband's godliness. I don't have a husband. Um, it's not the godliness, it's not the wisdom, it's not the smarts, it's not the whatever you want to put in, okay, that's the issue. That's not the issue, as we see from places like 1 Peter chapter 3. The church is to lovingly obey Christ. Now, fortunately for us, he is godly, he is wise, he is powerful, okay, but the, uh, the church obeys the one who gave himself for her, and this is meant to reflect that. Marriage is meant to reflect that relationship between Christ and the church. As Paul talks about, as he kind of opens this up in Ephesians 5, uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the body. And so um, he himself is the Savior. There's, there's authority that is there. Not only is Christ the source of the church, he is the authority over the church. So the church ought to submit to him. And so just as Christ um, exercises his authority over the church, both through the word of God and elders, so we see that Christ exercises his authority over wives through the word of God, but also husbands. That's, how, that's part of how he does it. And so we see that since this is a fitting thing, as Paul says, a wife's submission, therefore, would be pleasing both to God and her husband. I mean, who, what husband's going to be upset? Because his wife said, okay, let's do that. Maybe after he finds out his decision was bad, and he should have listened to his wife, he might be upset. But he can't be upset with her. He has to be upset with himself. So submission in marriage recognizes the legitimate authority that God has established within the marriage. Third part of this is that Christ transforms marriage by transforming us. I alluded to this a little earlier. All of us recognize authority in most social interactions. And there are particular interactions in which we expect 
others to obey us, right? If you go to a restaurant after worship today and you place an order, <laughs> really, that's, I, I kind of wondered this morning, why do we call it an order? Because it's not a suggestion. We're not making a suggestion to the waitress or the waiter for what we want. And if they don't bring us what we want, but bring us something else instead, do we just kind of say, well, hey, let's just roll with that. (laughs) Usually we'll say, wait a minute, that's not what I ordered. Could you please bring me what I ordered? We expect submission and obedience in that context. We don't expect to just give the the waitress or the waiter free hand with our food that day. Bring me whatever you want. (laughs) I don't care if it's lobster or not. I don't, it doesn't matter. We don't do that. Where we have the problem is when we're the one under authority. It's a heart issue. That's where it is. It's a heart issue, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the neighborhood, you know, whether it's in marriage, it's a heart issue. And most of us struggle to submit to any authority that is over us. And that is where that idea of our new identity in Jesus Christ comes into play. The old man resists authority. The new man in Christ willingly submits to legitimate authority. And so we have to put off the practices associated with the old man. And in this context, this puts off the the wives trying to gain authority and picks up willing submission to legitimate authority. We have the example of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, which not only the example, Paul also spells out, have the same mindset in you that was in Christ Jesus. He didn't cling to his rights. He didn't demand his way. He humbled himself and was obedient, even to death on the cross. Okay? So we see an example of Jesus. And that's one of the beauties of, of understanding this as well. The point I missed, I can bring back here with the reality. Jesus submitted to the Father. Does that mean he was not as much God as the Father? That somehow the Father was was more God and more superior to him? No. We see that Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God. There's not one who has more Godness than the other two. And yet... The Son, though equal with His Father in glory and power and wisdom and knowledge and strength and every other attribute you can imagine of God, though equal to Him in all of those things, obeyed His Father, submitted to His Father. When we get to the Gospel of John starting in uh, December, one of the things you are going to see ad nauseum, so much is probably going to make you want to choke, is that phrase, I was sent. That implies someone sent him. Jesus is saying, I was obedient to the Father who sent me here. Equality, yet submission. And it's the same thing in marriage. Equality, yet submission. I know, it's easy for me to say. I'm on a different side of the ledger. But it's the word of God. It's not my opinion. So, we also have the reality of gospel pardon for those times when we have defied authority 
And guys, we're supposed to offer that to them when they resist us. We're not to beat them over the head with this passage. We're to offer them grace and forgiveness. Christ also works in us by the Spirit to transform us into people like himself, willing to submit. And so we see that Christ offers a sufficient pardoning grace as well as sufficient purifying grace to change us and our marriages. Living like the gospel is true means that that neither spouse ends up fighting for their rights, fighting for their way, fighting to be right. If you have little children, you understand Oh, so clearly, Jesus' parable about the log and the splinter in the eye. Because what kids will do is they will focus completely on what's been done to them, the splinter, while ignoring the logs that they've been dropping on other people's toes. And sometimes in marriage, we do the same thing. We don't realize that our biggest problem in marriage is not our finances, it's probably not even our spouse, It's us, ourselves. And so we should be able to start to lay down our rights and not demand our rights. That's for wives as well as husbands. It's not about, ladies, whether or not you trust your husband completely. I remember the early days of our marriage. I would make that statement to Amy. What? Don't you trust me? Yeah, that's really going to engender trust. (laughs) And it's not about whether she trusts me. Because I am fallible. I am a sinner. And there are times I am going to lead us in the wrong direction. It has happened. It will happen again. I can I put money down on that. Not when it's going to happen, but that it will happen. Okay? Wives, your husband is a fallible sinner. Girls who are not yet married, whomever you marry is going to be a fallible sinner. They're going to get it wrong. You cannot wait until they have a proven track record of success. That's not going to happen. The real issue is whether or not you trust Christ. Now, one of the things that that the Westminster Confession of Faith says, we're out of time that I love is when it talks about God's providence and the use of means, it, it mentions that God works with, without, above, and against means. And so what this means is <laughs> Christ is in charge by his providence. Your husband ultimately is not in charge. He may make decisions, but Jesus is going to fulfill his plan and purpose despite him. And that might mean that God works beyond what your husband is able to do, and sometimes it means he thwarts your husband at every turn. Some of us guys know that feeling, right? Nothing I do works out right. Christ is thwarting us. Don't blame it all on the devil, okay? So wives, you have to remember, this goes back to Are you trusting Christ to work with and despite the guy you married? That's really what this is. 
So Jesus sanctifies our marriages by sanctifying us, and we recognize that that is an incredibly painful process at times. Because it's going to mean failure. It's going to mean bad decisions. All of these things. And so he's making our our marriages, however, a clearer reflection of his relationship with the church. That's the the goal that he's really got that, that we sometimes don't recognize as much as we ought to. We think it's to have a, a beautiful, happy little life on a, on a cul-de-sac. You know, I'm close to the cul-de-sac, by the way, uh, but not on the cul-de-sac. So he's making our marriages a greater reflection of his relationship with the church. And so living like the gospel is true means that instead of destroying God's design for marriage, we increasingly live more in step with God's design for marriage, which again is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, He leads, she, the church, submits. And that is God's pattern for Christian marriage. The gospel changes us from those who resist the realities of marriage, because some guys don't like to lead. They don't like to be responsible. They want to be the big child. Okay, we'll get to that next week. But it helps us to embrace those realities for the glory of God by living according to the peace and word of Christ. And so again, this is the first part of living like the gospel is real in marriage. Next week we'll continue as Paul calls out the husbands. Let's pray. Father, having heard, help us to listen and believe what your word says. May these truths humble us and exalt Jesus. Help us not only to believe your word, but to obey your word as the Spirit works in us to make us more and more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.